Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm very excited to introduce to you uh, today's guest, who is my dear friend, Stacy Kay. And we met just a few months ago, but I feel like we've been friends for quite some time now because it feels like a lot's already happened, Stacy. Would you agree? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's been a whirlwind. Yes. <laughs> it has. It has. So Stacy is a nurse practitioner. She works in an ICU and she is also uh, working alongside of um, many of us for in the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom Network. And um, we've just gotten to be good friends. She's also a foster parent and uh, she has four girls and I have four boys and we have we have a lot to talk about. Never, never lacking. Um, content. That's for sure. Right, Stacey? <laughs> that's right. It's a busy life. <laughs> it's a busy life for sure. So, uh, you know, I wanted to reference back quickly to a few episodes back. I talked to um, one of our dear mutual friends, Dr. Bose Ravenel, and we titled that episode, Are the Kids Next? Because that was when um, it was first proposed that Pfizer was going to request a meeting with the FDA for approval in kids to be vaccinated ages 5 to 11. And of course, fast forwarding about a month, I think now, and here we are that those vaccines do have emergency use authorization approval from the FDA. And we are beginning to see a lot of kids vaccinated and we're beginning to see a lot of messaging in the media and so forth. And there is beginning to already be, I would say, pressure on parents that's coming in a lot of different, coming from a lot of different angles. And today we are going to dig into the research that has and has not been specifically for kids ages five to 11. And Stacy, among her many gifts and talents, is a researcher. She is uh, she's a, she is medically minded and knows what she's looking for in research. And I think that we're going to see today that there are a lot of questions that are not answered. And some of the ones that are answered, I don't know that we're going to love the answers to. And so Stacy, let's just start from the beginning. Will you tell us what is missing from some of the, from the research that we have that we know has been presented by Pfizer in particular at this point around vaccinating five to 11 year olds. Okay. Um, so some of the things we're missing, <clears throat> excuse me, as far as these vaccines are concerned, um, start with kind of how, how Pfizer set up their trial, because mm -hmm. um, if we're going to base anything off of evidence, you have to look at how did they gather evidence in the first place? Um, so the thing is, Pfizer's trial was very small. So they only enrolled 2,200 kids, uh, roughly. About 1,500 got the vaccine, 750 didn't. Um, the FDA did ask Pfizer to enroll more kids, but Pfizer ignored them. There's 28 million eligible American kids um, in our population. So to try to extrapolate data from 2,200 kids and apply that to 28 million, that's just negligible. You really have to have a larger sample size in order to draw any kind of correlations and to recommend things. 
So that's kind of the first biggie is we just don't have enough data um, from Pfizer's pediatric trials to, to really go off of anything. Right. Um, and what, will you just, just for our audience, Stacey, just in general, like what would, what would you say that would be a more reasonable sample size, you know, compared to what we normally would look at it in a trial? Sure. So that all depends on what you're looking for. So if you have to power a trial to be able to give you good data that you can use to make decision points off of. And so it really does depend on what you're looking for. Are you looking for um, like hospitalization rates? Are you looking for a death endpoint? Are you looking for inflammatory symptoms endpoint? Um, <clears throat> and so you have to, based on what you're looking for is based on how much, how many kids that you enroll to meet that threshold. Because mm-hmm. if you're, if you're, you know, say you set up a hospitalization endpoint, well, even if you enroll 5 million kids and only two are hospitalized, well, you still haven't met the powered threshold to be able to give any data for that. Okay. Um, and so it just kind of depends on, you know, how you power the study to look at what you're looking for. Gotcha. But we can, we could argue that, that, that sample needs to be significantly larger. Absolutely. Because even with that sample size, only three kids in the treatment group and 16 in the placebo group got COVID. Right. You're talking about just, you know, not even double digits for the treatment group. Mm -hmm. Um, So the data there is just, I mean, you just have to toss it out, really. It's, It's not even limited. It's just unusable. Right. Right. Okay. So talk to, talk to me, tell us about the speaking of what's missing from the data, there are some children that were that are missing from the data. Is that correct? Yes, there are. So Pfizer only enrolled kids that did not have evidence of a prior COVID infection. So kids that already had natural immunity were not allowed in the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they do all these things on purpose. As of June of this year, 42% of American kids had already had COVID. And that's just the confirmed cases that we know of. Mm-hmm. And we know that a lot of kids are asymptomatic and they've had it. Um, parents find this out when they get their antibodies tested or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we also know that even kids that do get COVID, most of the time their cases are pretty mild. Um, right. And there are exceptions to that, but that's, that's kind of how it is. So that 42% number is probably a lot higher. Um, and Pfizer did not look at kids that had a prior COVID infection. These were just kids that um, had nothing previously. And the reason that makes me worry is that we know that in our adult populations that have had COVID recovered and then gotten the vaccine, they are at a much higher risk of developing adverse events from the vaccine if they've had COVID before. Right. And right now the recommendation is for just a blanket statement, all kids five to 11, let's go get it without Mm -hmm. any consideration of natural immunity. And that's not even a population that was studied in the trial. So it's unethical to recommend that for kids that have had covered and recovered because you didn't even study that population in your pediatric trials. Right, right. And speaking of, you know, continuing with what's missing, um, if talk to us about the children that were excluded that were originally part of the trials. Um, as far as, um, I, I believe that there were uh, uh, over 100 children that were originally part of the trial that 
we don't have data on. Oh, yes, as far as the follow-up data. So, the follow-up data, I'm sorry. Actually, fine. why don't we talk about the follow-up just in general? That'd be good to start. Sure, sure. So Pfizer kind of built in a two-month follow-up period after, um, after the second dose. So that was, that was the length of time that they um, agreed to follow these kids and monitor for safety and symptoms and, and whatnot. Um, so even with that, and that's a very short follow-up period, especially when you're talking about a vaccine. I mean, we follow people for years mm-hmm. because we know that certain things are not going to develop in a two-month period. Um, right. Things like autoimmune issues, cancers, long-term reproductive issues, which you're not going to catch in a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just not going to see that in two months. And so that's very worrisome. Um, even with that two-month follow-up, they did not report safety follow-up info on 4.9% of their participants. And that equals 111 kiddos, which you're talking about. Right. Um, with their with their trial being so small in number, that 111 kids can really skew the data even further. And there's mm-hmm. no there's no talk about what happened to these kids. Why did they lose follow-up? Did their parents just not answer an email? Did something bad happen to these children? We just don't know. Right. Um, and so that in and of itself, and Pfizer not being very forthcoming about that information, that makes me pause as well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, um, you know, we see in the news that the vaccine, this one for five to 11 year olds is 90% effective. And before you even talk about how they arrived to that number, like you just mentioned, the follow-up period was two months. So even from an effectiveness standpoint, I mean, we don't want to go have to revaccinate kids every two to three months, right? And so mm-hmm. even for the effectiveness of the vaccine to say, even before we get into how they came up with a 90% number, to be able to say that confidently after two months of follow-up is quite short-sighted, even just for COVID itself, not to mention all of the safety issues. So (laughs) just a note there, but tell us about this 90% number, because until you shared this with me, I actually was not familiar with how they arrived at this number. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of shady math. Um, So like we said before, the kids in the trial, whether they were vaxxed or not, they all had mild illnesses. So nobody, zero, progressed to severe COVID, zero kids died, zero needed to be hospitalized. All of them had a mild illness, no matter if they were vaxxed or not. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to determine vaccine efficacy based on just that health outcome alone, you're falling way short. You can't base it on that because all the kids did the same. So what they did was they started looking at levels of neutralizing antibody titers um, in these kids, the 5 to 11 group, and they compared it with the level of antibodies in blood work from the previous studies on 16 to 25-year-olds, so older people. Mm -hmm. So they looked at this older group range. They figured out the level of antibodies that seemed to be protective in that population. Then they looked at how many kids 5 to 11 had similar levels of antibodies, And that's how they came up with a number for how many cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and deaths that theoretically would be prevented in this smaller population uh, just based on the antibody levels alone. So it's all conjecture. It's very hypothetical. You know, we know that kids have a different physiology overall than older people. They're not just small adults. They metabolize things completely differently. You can't extrapolate data 
from older people and say that, oh, this applies to kids too, without doing some serious research. And that just takes time. So their, their math is shady. Their methods are shady. I've never seen a study conducted like this before and it be legitimate data that we, we pick up on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this is very worrisome about, you know, what is their intention with this? Why are we trying to push this through for kids? And why are we using shady math to do it? Right. And even on the pushing through, I mean, I, I listened to part of the original panel and they they asked a lot of questions that they did not get answers for mm-hmm. and then went on to recommend. And so there doesn't seem to be much accountability for the data, for even all of the things that were brought up missing. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the panelists said that we will not know the, the safety of these vaccines until we start vaccinating children. And that seems to be a completely different threshold than what we've ever done when it comes to the traditional childhood vaccines. Am I wrong? Oh, no, you're completely right. When he said that, I, I think I threw up in my mouth a little bit. It's like, right. are you kidding me? You think you said that out loud? Like, that's crazy. You're talking about our children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Talk to what about what's happening in other countries when it comes to vaccinating kids right now? Right. So other countries, you know, they tend to pick up on things a lot sooner than we do. We are just we're always behind the times, it seems. Um, so Taiwan, they've seen a, a double digit rise in their myocarditis cases and their population that's 12 to 17. So they've actually suspended the second dose of Pfizer's COVID vaccine for them because they're worried about that population having um, a compounded effect. And we know that the effect does compound with the amount of doses that you get. Mm-hmm. Um, Hong Kong and the UK, they're doing similar things as well. They're only giving a single dose to kids 12 to 17. Um, and uh, a lot of countries are not even looking at getting near vaccinating kids younger than 12. Um, France and Germany, Canada, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, to people Mm -hmm. over 30. Um, so it's clear that other countries are picking up on some safety signals and, and intervening to keep their population as, as safe and, and effective. It's such like a trademark term these days. Um, as they possibly can. Um, Israel's kind of a whole nother bear, but, <laughs> but they're kind of moving in the opposite direction. Um, right. But there are some countries around the world that are taking notice of some safety signals. Myocarditis kind of being the big one, um, mm-hmm. but blood clots and strokes, things like that are also on the docket and, and neurological injuries that we're seeing cropping up from the adult population that's been vaccinated. Right. And I think one thing to point out here is what seems like preparation for the negative side effects that we're likely to see in kids. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's what, disgusting. Tell us about some of these things that we're seeing outside of the moral signaling that we're seeing on TV, on cartoon commercials, that you're a superhero if you get a vaccine and that kind of thing, um, which seems to you know, be a mental manipulation and coercion. We're beginning to be desensitized already to what the potential side effects could be in kids and a normalization of things that don't ever happen right now. Talk about that for a minute because you gave some good examples. 
Yeah. So there's, it seems like there's a big propaganda campaign going on right now. Um, I've never in my life seen incentives given for people to get vaccinated. I mean, that's just basic coercion. Um, right. We've all kind of seen the superhero. I don't know. You'll be a superhero if you get vaccinated, that kind of stuff. That right. definitely kids. Um, other children have have had other incentives. Like um, there was a, a young kid that came home from school and said, mom, they said, if I get vaccinated, I don't have to wear a mask. Like, really? Mm-hmm. Are we hanging that over our kids' heads? Um, right. I've seen other offers like free AirPods, um, straight up money. Uh, they're also guilt tripping kids, um, isolating mm-hmm. them in classrooms, things like that. So there's, there's a lot of carrot and stick things that are, that are happening to try to get kids vaccinated. Um, there's a lot of um, circumventing of parental involvement as well. You don't have to have a doctor's order to get the vaccine. I know in um, the hospital I work in, you don't have to have a provider's order to give the vaccine. The nurses can do it on their own. Right. Um, and so a lot of states, kids can give consent on their own, which is mm-hmm. really scary. Do you um, by chance have this statement handy from the WHO about what consent means with with us? Or do you, if you yes. don't, it's okay. okay. Awesome. I would love for you to share that because I think it's really important. This is for parents to understand that yes. this is the new definition of consent. And so before she even shares it, and Stacy and I have talked about that. This we have both had very specific conversations with our own children about what it what to do if you're approached with an uncomfortable situation around this. And so, go ahead. Just wanted to preface that. <laughs> yeah. So this is easily Googleable on the um, World Health Organization, the WHO, the WHO, um, mm-hmm. on their website. And so this is what, of course, they're not you know an entity operating solely within the United States, but you really have to consider just everything that's out there right now. Um, So this is what it says. It says an implied consent process by which parents are informed of imminent vaccination through social mobilization and communication, sometimes including letters directly addressed to parents. Subsequently, the physical presence of the child or adolescent with or without an accompanying parent at the vaccination session is considered to imply consent. This practice Mm -hmm. is based on the opt-out principle, and parents who do not consent to vaccination are expected to implicitly take steps to ensure that their child or adolescent does not participate in the vaccination session. This may include not letting the child or adolescent attend school on a vaccination day if vaccine delivery occurs through schools, and we know that it is. Right. So there are so many alarms to sound with that, that uh that we have to be aware and keep our children out of school in order to ha- be uh, be allowed our parental rights and so i just i think we cannot overemphasize to parents how much your conversations with your kids matter around this so that they're well equipped and they know what to do if they're approached in an uncomfortable situation and also that whether it's with your local school board or your private school or whatever it might look like, we have to stay on top of this and on the front of end of it versus reacting later. Um, the other thing I know we've talked about that we've seen is kids are getting the wrong vaccines. You know, we've, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen and heard of kids that went to a Walgreens or a CVS to get a flu vaccine and have ended up getting an adult dose of COVID. I mean, this is happening. And so we just have to 
be on higher alert than maybe ever before when it comes to what is happening and the care that our kids are getting and making sure that we are all well-equipped and informed around the possibilities. Yes. So, um, let's see, what else? I, I know I forgot a couple of very important things that I didn't specifically ask about, but I know that there's a, maybe a couple other things that we want to make sure parents are aware of. Sure. So, um, you know, Pfizer in their trial, they extrapolated data across the lifespan. So, if you hold true to what they're doing and you look at what's happening with adults, there's a few things to kind of keep in mind. So the rate of adverse events in adults that are COVID recovered and get the shot is much higher than the vac and than vaccinated adults that have not had COVID. Um, and so again, kids with natural immunity, and we know there's a ton of them. That's definitely something to take into consideration. Natural immunity is robust. It's long lasting. These kids take COVID and they just rock it. Um, and not only that, but a whole nother lecture could be dedicated to early treatment protocols um, that nobody in the three-letter organizations are talking about. So right. if this is true with adults, could this be true or worse for kids? Could they have an even more adverse reaction to these vaccines if they've been COVID recovered? We just don't know because that wasn't studied. Right. Um, another thing that concerns me is there's some data coming out of the UK um, that looks like a consistent downward trend from people, from adults who've been vaccinated um, as far as your overall immunity. So it's almost like it, it's, it's the COVID shot wiping out your natural killer cells. And mm -hmm. in some ways that looks like an AIDS type illness where you have an acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Right. Um, and what we see with that is there's an uptick in um, cancers that are coming out. Dr. Ryan Cole in Idaho, he yes. has talked about a 20% rise in cancers since vaccination campaigns began. And that's and uterine cancers, blood cancers, all kinds of cancers. Right. And just a note on that, uh, we've talked about Ryan Cole a moment, a little bit before in other episodes, but he has a private lab out in Idaho. He's been attacked a lot, but he's mm -hmm. doing a lot of his own blood, mm -hmm. right, blood research for lack of a better term. So yeah, it, it's very difficult to find that. But if you're interested, then that's a, he, that's a good place to research. Um, sorry, continue Stacy. No, that's fine. He's amazing. And he's really great at, you know, putting things in layman's terms. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so if we see this trend in adults, what does this look like in our kids? What are we doing to our children's immune systems where this vaccine attacks your natural killer cells and attacks your tumor surveillance cells that are responsible for keeping cancer cells at bay and for keeping um, viruses that normally don't bother us too much at bay. Things like Epstein-Barr virus, we've seen an uptick in that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we've seen an uptick in herpes viruses like um, like your shingles. Um I've also seen an uptick in mono and uh, RSV. All of these things are, are things that are, we have a higher than normal rate right now. Um, I've noticed it. Uh, I've noticed it anecdotally with other providers that I'm in contact with at other organizations. Um, and so that's just something to keep in mind. That's not a normal occurrence. And it seems to track along the same timeline as when the COVID vaccines have started. So you know, mm -hmm. your kids have amazing immune systems for the most part, and God has given them an amazing way to fight this COVID virus. Right. I wouldn't mess with it. That's just my, my overarching recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps the most harrowing thing that 
is coming out is the increase in your typical mortality rate in kids that have been vaccinated. So for example, um, there's a 47% increase in your typical mortality rate in teens in the United Kingdom since the vaccinations began. That's 47% Mm -hmm. more kids are dying than normal. And the same is true for uh, Germany. I think their rate is 20% right now. Um, And actually, I think the UK's most recent data was 61%. So it's just this Mm -hmm. steady line upwards of more kids than normal that are dying. And, um, And all of that tracks since... I mean, the week of the vaccinations began, you can track it back to that. It's almost a a direct correlation. That's extremely worrisome. Like how many kids have to die for us to say, let's just wait on that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the truth is just in closing that right now, if we are signing our kids up or we're taking our kids to get vaccinated, we must understand Mm -hmm that they are the clinical trials. We can say the same for adults, but it's even different with our children to assume that we can make, we can draw conclusions from the tiny bit of evidence that we have right now is really far stretching. And there's a lot, a lot to be concerned about comparing the risks to the benefits more, you know, there, there seem to be very little benefits and a lot of potential risks involved um, for the segment of our population that we are most responsible for protecting. So that's something that we must be aware of as parents and, and concerned citizens. We've got to be able to speak out and Stacey and I are working behind the scenes on other ways that we are doing that, but it's, it's each of our responsibility in order to do that. And sometimes it can be hard to love people well and to share and help them be better informed and understand, but this isn't a time that we can sit back in my opinion. Absolutely. Yep. There's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of misinformation out there. <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. to be another buzzword these days. Uh-huh. Yes, um, it but for those of us looking at the raw data um, coming out of other countries, we're seeing very concerning signs. Um, just the myocarditis alone, you know, kids are six times more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis from this vaccine than from COVID itself. And I know mm-hmm. that was kind of a big talking point was, oh, well, you could get myocarditis from, the, from COVID too. Well, you mm-hmm. can, but you're six times more likely to get it from the vaccine. And if we were to jab every kid that's eligible, that equals about 3,000 extra myocarditis cases in this country. And I know it's been touted as a, you know, a mild illness and kids recover, but that mild illness, quote unquote, has a a 20% fatality rate in two years and 50% within the next decade. So Mm -hmm. it's not a small thing. Um, My husband works with heart patients. We know all about this you know, very intensely, it's not a small thing. It's not small for adults. It's certainly not small for kids who have decades and decades and decades in front of them if they mm-hmm. remain healthy. Um, so the last thing I would want is for it to be found dead in the bed in the morning when I try to get them up for school. I mean, that that is literally my worst nightmare. And um, I can't imagine what that is as a mother. Um, I certainly don't want to deal with that on the provider side as well, because just you feel your patient's pain when they come in with those kinds of problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And so 
I just urge you, if, if you have a kid, the immune system and they're doing great, you know, maybe you want to get them tested for antibodies to see um, if they have immunity. They're certainly getting natural boosters with Delta running around the, the population. Um, right. But just, just take these things into consideration because the risks are high um, and it's really upside down for most kids. Um, I would think most kids should not get these vaccines. Well, Stacey, I so appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much for joining us today. What our listeners don't know is all of the technical problems we had getting started, but we were able to complete this. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, if our listeners have further questions, um, suggestions for topics for the podcast, we always are interested in hearing from you. And please don't forget to share this with your friends and family members who need to hear it. So thanks again, Stacy, And I look forward to talking to you soon. Right, thanks, Emily. Take care. Bye.